0: environmental,
1: conversations,
0: on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This this is is ECOCAST. EcoCast. Hello and welcome to ECOCAST, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet.
1: And I am Brandon Gollum.
0: And thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, we are thrilled to have Joshua Trey Barnett, who is an assistant professor of communication arts and sciences at the Pennsylvania State University, where he is jointly appointed at the Huck Institutes of the Life Sciences. His scholarship focuses on what he calls the rhetoric of earthly coexistence. Over the last few years, his thinking and writing have revolved around ecological grief across several essays and his first book, Mourning in the Anthropocene, Ecological Grief and Earthly Coexistence, which we will be discussing today he traces the rhetorical conditions of ecological grief. Professor Barnett is currently writing one book about the rhetoric of ecological care and editing another about the rhetorical nature of ecological feelings more broadly. He lives with his partner, Brandon, and a cat named Judith on the south side of Slab Cabin Run in State College, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Joshua, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Yeah, super excited.
0: All right, before we get into discussing this really fascinating book, I, of course, am going to offer a little bit of folkloric knowledge on today's theme. So across pre-modern Japan, but especially on the northern island now known as Hokkaido, the people lived with the wolves. Thought of as divine spirits, the wolf was respected and revered and looked to as a valuable member of the ecosystem. Wolves protected the farmers' fields from being overrun by wild boar and deer. And the wolves protected humans from other dangerous deities, like the bear god. And possessed of the ability to judge human merit, the wolves would protect good human travelers and guide them to the right path. By the beginning of the 1900s, however, the Japanese wolf was extinct. Despite the wolf spirit continuing to be a character in popular culture and a symbol in shrines, the wolves themselves disappeared with little acknowledgement and little mourning. While not the happiest of folkloric knowledge today, it is fitting for our conversation about ecological grief. And if you would like to learn more about the wolves of Japan, please consider reading Brett Walker's book, The Lost Wolves of Japan, after you read today's guest's book, of course. (laughs) All right, so let's get started. Joshua, as we said, thank you for joining us. Um, Would you be able to give us a short introduction to your book so readers know what we're going to talk about today?
2: Sure. Morning in the Anthropocene is a book about what it means and in some sense what it feels like to reckon with the loss of more than human beings and ways of being, with the loss of habitats and ecosystems, and indeed with the loss of the relatively stable climate that has nurtured the growth and development of human life and of human civilization as we know it. Of course, loss is inherent in life. We can neither wish nor will it away. But as listeners of this podcast surely know, we're dwelling in a period of Earth history characterized by enormous ecological loss and planetary transformations, many of which human actions have set into motion, either directly through the destruction of habitat, for example, or indirectly through the extraction and burning of fossil fuels that are themselves fueling climate change. So Morning in the Anthropocene sets out from the premise that while loss is always with us, we're currently living through, and many of us are contributing to, a time of immense and often unnecessary loss. With that starting point in mind, Mourning in the Anthropocene proceeds to raise a question about how we, and by we I mean we humans who are often responsible for and always in some sense affected by such losses, how we ought to respond affectively and ethically and politically to the destruction of particular more than human beings and ways of being, and more broadly to the diminishment of the conditions that support earthly coexistence. And of course, as the title of the book suggests, I argue that we really ought to be grieving, and yet many of us are not grieving This failure to grieve, this failure to recognize that someone or something significant is lost when, for example, we lose another species or when we destroy a habitat, is the product, I argue, of a rampant, though certainly not universal, human exceptionalism, which has for a very long time and continues to alienate a great many of us from the more than human world. Human exceptionalism teaches us not only that we humans are different from all of the other beings on Earth, but much more devastatingly that we're better from those others. And a world shaped by this form of human exceptionalism, I argue, is a world in which it's hard to see more than human others as worthy of our grief and so also of our concern and our care. So if human exceptionalism alienates us from the more-than-human world, making it more difficult for us to see other animals and plants and landscapes and ecosystems as worthy of our grief, the question then becomes, for me anyway, how we might push back against this alienation and instead cultivate connections across difference. So the argument that I make in the book is basically that what many scholars now call ecological grief is neither natural nor inevitable, at least not in any simple sense. Ecological grief is rather a capacity that has to be cultivated. And so what I try to do throughout mourning in the Anthropocene is to identify and think through some of the cultural and rhetorical practices that render us individually and collectively more capable of grieving beyond the human. In particular, I argue that naming practices enable us to anticipate losses to come that particular archival practices reveal otherwise imperceptible losses, and the practices of visualization can help us to imagine past, present, and future losses. All of this cultural work is important because grief, although often painful, also opens paths toward healing. Grief is, we might say, a symptom of connection, if not of love. When we grieve, our connectedness is reflected back to us. And so striving for a world in which we grieve the loss of more than human others is actually a way of striving for a world in which we are and in which we feel more connected to, more bound up with, and perhaps even, this is the hope of the book anyways, perhaps even more responsible to the plurality of beings and ways of being with whom we share this earth.
0: Thank you so much for that great explanation.
1: Um I, one of the things I, I, I was kind of uh thinking about as you were talking there is um I'm 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 wondering or curious if there's um if like, through your research, do you did you know or, or notice if there were moments in which uh we have examples of of people who do, you know, there there are moments where we're mourning, right? The, like the, the loss of a species or something like that. Um, but other moments where you know, in the same way that like I think we kind of uh, we have hierarchies for, you know, things that we keep as pets versus things that we eat as food versus. Right. Uh, and I'm so I'm curious, I guess, if the, if you find similar hierarchies in terms of that grief, because um, I think the thing that stands out to me is something like, um, you know, pictures of like the polar bears, like that are like um, you know withering away because they can't find food and they're you know um, know, these kind of uh, very images that that are designed to kind of evoke this idea of loss and grief and something like that we see and we're like oh my gosh that poor polar bear but like you know the countless species that are going extinct of insects and you know all these other things that are not actually shown to us Um, I'm curious if you if you see those hierarchies you know at play at all in in our relationship to that grief and loss.
2: Thanks for that question, Brandon. Um, this is reminding me of something which Aldo Leopold actually said in uh, his 1949 book, A Sammy County Almanac. And in, in that book, he says that we grieve only what we know, right? We grieve only what we know. And so in some sense, the book is attempting to think through the ways in which we come to know various others, right? More than human others, And so uh, I think part of it has to do with proximity and distance. You mentioned pets, right, or um, the sorts of companion animals with which we share, uh, with whom we share our homes, our yards, our local communities. Right. It may seem easier in many senses to see those particular beings as worthy of our grief in ways that it's much more difficult to see. Uh, beings and ways of being that live in other places or that have lived in other times, right, as similarly grievable. I think, too, there is a relationship here between scale, right, and your, your example of insects, right, uh, I think is really quite important. Some of the work that I've been doing uh, over the last year and a half or so has actually been focused on a couple of different insects, one is the woolly adelgid, the hemlock woolly adelgid, and the other is the spotted lanternfly, both of which are so-called invasive species in eastern North America. And um, the ways in which those two species have been constructed right, in popular discourse makes it incredibly difficult to see either one as worthy of grief, much less of concern or care So the hierarchies that you're talking about are very much present with us when we think about questions of grief and mourning. And part of the question for humanistic scholars, especially those of us interested in environmental ethics, is to think about the ways in which we might begin to dissolve those hierarchies long enough that we might question them. Right. Why is it that we find it so much easier to grieve either for our pets or even for charismatic megafauna like the polar bears that you mentioned than it is for these other beings, right, which are very much part and parcel of our everyday lives, but which are maybe small, right, or deemed insignificant within the popular imaginary.
0: Mm, That's an excellent answer. And I think gives all of us a lot to think about in terms of what animals we're scared of versus which ones we think are cute versus which ones we think are majestic, and how that affects our affect specifically about them and the sort of grief that can come from them not existing. Which, speaking of the idea of not existing, I'm curious if you consider yourself part of the sort of extinction specialist category, because I think your work is discussing much more than that as well in terms of grief and death that don't necessarily necessitate extinction. It's more, and more than that. Mourning is more than just loss, completely. What do you think sort of the role extinction plays is in your work and in our understanding of ecological
2: grief? Thanks for that question. I certainly didn't set out uh, on this project thinking that I was going to be contributing to extinction studies, which in retrospect (laughs) seems a little bit naive, right? Because of course, a book on ecological grief is inevitably going to um, intersect and interface with the question of extinction. Um, it's not uh, an accident that the cover of the book includes an image of two passenger pigeons, right? Which is an extinct species of bird uh, that long dwelled in North America. So um, the question of extinction, I think, is a really interesting one because it forces us to think about the relationship between individual living beings and what we usually call species, but which we might also call ways of being or life ways to invoke um, one of Tom Van Doren's phrases. When an individual living being perishes, we call this death, right? And when a way of being ceases to be, we call this extinction. So extinction, in other words, is the name that we give, not just to the passing away of some particular life, which we might deem valuable or not, but rather to the unraveling of a whole way of life, which is also the unraveling of a whole host of relationships, which that way of life or way of being subtends or makes possible. So while extinction surely involves the deaths of many, indeed all or presumably all of the individuals who comprise a particular way of being, extinction also involves something still more devastating namely the diminishment of the present and future world. So when a way of being becomes extinct, it's not just an aggregate of individual living beings that leaves the world. Rather, to lose those individual beings in mass and in toto is also to lose the world-making possibilities that that particular way of being is, right? I'm reminded here of Deborah Bird roses notion of double death. So put simply, extinction robs us not just of living beings but of worlds and of the relations that those worlds would have or could have sustained had that being uh, been allowed to survive. At the same time, extinctions often result from the unmaking of worlds, the destruction of habitats, the fragmenting of ecosystems, the destruction of vital sources of sustenance, right, examples of these sorts of processes are littered throughout the book and indeed throughout the literature um, in the environmental humanities more broadly. But the point is that extinction calls attention to the ways in which the world has been in some sense made uninhabitable, inhospitable, not to all, right, but to certain ways of being, So, uh, as I said, right, there's an image, a painting of two passenger pigeons alighting on an oak branch. That's the cover of the book. And in fact, the story of the passenger pigeon's demise runs throughout its pages. The passenger pigeon was once the most abundant bird in North America. According to at least some estimates, there were once six or so billion of these birds uh, in, in this part of the world. And in fact, there are many detailed accounts from as late as the last half of the 19th century in which denizens of the Eastern United States recall seeing massive flocks, millions of birds that would sometimes take days to pass overhead, literally darkening the skies and the process. From our current vantage point, it's quite difficult, maybe even impossible for many of us to imagine such avian abundance. And yet through habitat destruction, and hunting European settlers decimated the passenger pigeon in a matter of decades. By the turn of the century, there were very few left, and by 1914, there were none left. The last passenger pigeon who was named after Martha Washington died in captivity in the Cincinnati Zoo on September 1, 1914. So we've lost the world of the passenger pigeon, and it's been lost to us for more than 100 years. I mentioned the passenger pigeon because the story of its extinction reminds us, I think, of what is at stake in the unraveling of worlds. Passenger pigeons were, as Otto Leopold once put it, a biological storm. He called them the lightning that played between two biotic poles of intolerable intensity, the fat of the land and its own zest for living. And so a world without passenger pigeons is not only a different world, it is in many senses a diminished world. And that's really, I think, what's at stake in extinction and why it matters so much because extinction involves the diminishment of our common world. And in our own age, right, which has been called the sixth age of the mass extinction, the stakes for our common world could not be higher.
1: Yeah. I, I'm uh interested in your thoughts on uh the the idea of de-extinction right that there's a lot of um conversations around that i was i was just listening to a a podcast uh on my walk into school this morning um that was talking that they are like really close uh to be able to i they're to bring back the dodo um and so uh you know this is you know I, i think the I think if if the passenger pigeon is, is is uh often thought of an extinction, I think the dodo bird is is right up there with like if if you ask somebody, you know, that kind of quick recall. Um and so I'm just I guess I'm curious, right? Cause I, I, I have I think I have complicated feelings about it because um You know, the science nerd in me is like fascinated by it. And it's remarkable that, you know, we've figured out a way to do this. Um, But I think the other part of me is similar to like the people who keep defaulting to like well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna worry about changing my behaviors, or I'm not gonna worry about, you know, doing this or that because the scientists will figure it out. The sci like with global warming and climate change, it's just like eh, science will figure it out. So we don't need to make systemic changes right now because science will do it. Uh and so it I, I think there's a kind of a similar parallel there where we're talking about this this kind of um lack of, of care right in this world that we're losing, uh, whether it's the species or the actual world. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm just, I'm curious on, uh, just to hear your take and thoughts a little bit on, on, you know, de-extinction.
2: Yes, I have thoughts. Um, so part of what's important about extinction, as I said, is that it, it diminishes our common world. The other thing that's really important about extinction is that it's final, right? It's final. Um, and so in many senses, um, You know, even as scientists claim to be very close to reviving particular species, in fact, the the living beings that they would be bringing back into the world are not quite like um, the species. They may be very close, genetically speaking, um, but it, it is in some sense impossible, right, to bring back the passenger pigeon. We can Construct a, we can construct a species that is very similar and that might function in very similar ways within ecosystems, um, but it's not exactly the same thing. And so I think remembering the finality of extinction is incredibly important. Um, part of what a thinking through of ecological grief and mourning invites really is a realistic grappling with the finality and the consequences and the magnitude of loss. Right, this becomes especially important when those losses are the products of human action, right? Not of all humans equally, right? But of human action. Um, And de extinction, in some sense, I think, lets us off the hook. And I think we desperately need to keep ourselves on
1: the hook. Here, here, I. Yes, yeah. yeah.
2: Excellent, excellent take. (laughs) I could say a lot more, but that's, I think that's
0: enough. Thank you for answering that question. We know it's not something you necessarily deal with in your book, but it is a question that comes up, you know, in this whole conversation and I think is very important in the entire um, conversation around responsibility. And I think your links of mourning and grief to loving and caring about something. And it is that connection that makes us want to grieve for something and it does sort of even emotionally let us off the hook if we're like, we'll just recreate it in a lab. Like it kind of takes, some, to me, it feels like it takes some of the weight. Yes, it can mentally remove some of the weight of connection, which is important for
2: mourning. Yeah. And I think that's hugely dangerous. It's a It's a hugely dangerous precedent to set, right? If we can always presume that anything we push over the edge of extinction can be brought back right that we can pull it back up via some invisible rope then we can sort of carry on business as usual status quo it's a dangerous road to go down i think
1: yeah yeah absolutely i i'm uh this is kind of tangential but but really so um the 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 paper that i'm i'm i've proposed for asley's conference this year uh there's a new video game coming out uh called Terra Nil um, and it's a it's kind of like a civilization you know uh you know resource management type game, but the concept of it is that you're trying to uh reclaim you know uh wastelands areas that have been decimated um but what's interesting is that it uses all of this technology to do that right it's it's this it's a similar concept where it's like we're um you know it's it's trying to the game itself is trying to challenge that notion of. Um, you know uh, what a lot of those kind of civilization type games do, which is just like, give me all the resources, give me all the resources. But at the same time, it's not really, uh, and I should say I've only played the demo because the full game is not out yet. So my criticisms of it are still, you know, being worked out. But, um, you know, the same idea is that like this technology is going to save us. And so, um the game is is try it's trying to like kind of play the best of both sides it's not really fully engaging with the actual problem which is these systems that are just not being challenged that are continuing to just have um lasting and immense impacts on you know individual ecosystems and the the you know larger ones as well
2: now it's my time to say here here it's not to say right that there's not a, a place for Restorative work.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Um, I think that's a crucial distinction, right? But there is a sense in which um we sometimes want to offload our, our hope, right, yeah. into um technologies or governments that we know, right, from our own experiences often have neither our best interests right. in mind and certainly not the best interests of our more than human kin and kind.
1: Yeah.
0: Speaking of systems and the systemic, let's talk a little bit about your chapters just because two of them, especially the naming and archiving chapters, to me, I think of those as systems and they can be um, problematic in their sort of systemic nature, at least like in my field, which is based in East Asian studies, the issue of archiving does come up a lot and what certain archives are. So, Love to hear some more about those chapters. So if you could start with naming, perhaps. I think naming is one of those things that you really complicate in this book in a way that's really evocative. So if you could talk us through some more about the tensions between naming as a system that humans use to keep non-humans under our control versus sort of a stance you bring up where naming is a generative way to prepare ourselves for ecological mourning he could talk us through some of that.
2: Sure. Um, so like many of the practices that I talk about in the book, naming is something of a double-edged sword. Right. On the one hand, naming can certainly alienate us from the more than human world, as well as one another. On the other hand, though, the giving and the learning and the speaking of names can also enable humans to forge and sustain connections and bonds. And so I try to do due diligence to both of those realities while focusing more in the book on the latter possibilities. Um, I'll say a few words about the sort of negative side of naming. Interestingly enough, in her book on the sixth mass extinction, Elizabeth Colbert links the ongoing extinction event to the human capacity and the proclivity to name more than human others. So she tells an origin story, right? How did we get to the place that we're in where uh, more and more species are becoming extinct every year? And she says it has something to do with naming. And if we look at the biblical story of Genesis, we can perhaps begin to see or get a sense of why Colbert's interpretation is at least partly convincing. Right. So you may recall that in Genesis, God creates and then names Adam, in whom God vests the power to name all of the other living creatures on the earth. And in doing so, assume his place in the great chain of being. Right. In naming all of the other animals and plants, man in the form of Adam also assumes dominion over them. And those listeners who um, have read Lynn White. Junior's essay, um, right, about the Judeo-Christian roots of the contemporary ecological crisis may recall that he, too, makes a very similar move in that essay to say that there's something very important about the fact that in this particular origin story, naming and dominion arrive at roughly the same time. So the act of naming is tangled up, right, with power by naming the other we assume at least some degree of control over them. Naming is, as you say, a sort of system of ordering and cataloging and uh, in some sense of controlling. And we see this power dynamic play out in a whole range of places, um, one of which uh, one of which I talk about in the book has to do with toponyms, right? The names that we give to particular places. So if you are in the United States and you look at a map of this land that we now call the United States, for example, you'll find very few indigenous toponyms. Instead, you're likely to encounter the toponyms given to various places by European settlers and their descendants. Oftentimes this means, right, that the toponyms are themselves the names of those settlers or the names of places in the so-called old country. And so there's a kind of appropriation at work, but it's also an an arrogant appropriation, right? So naming can be and often is violent, right? As one name is made to take the place of another, or one one name displaces the name of the other in a popular imagination. It's not just the name itself, which is pushed aside, it's the relationships, that gave rise to different names. It's the systems of knowledge that those names were embroiled in and for many people continue to be embroiled in. So naming has this violent edge. And yet, right, naming is not only violent. And so what I try to do in the book is to think through the ways in which naming can establish and sustain bonds with others, particularly more than human others. And in doing so, help us to anticipate and potentially even ward off the loss of those others. My thinking about naming was influenced by Jacques Derrida across a number of works, but including one that many readers or listeners might be familiar with, The Animal That Therefore I Am, Derrida suggests that naming opens us up to an encounter with the finitude of the other who is named. The name, Derrida tells us, anticipates a time to come In which the other will no longer be with us. The name, in other words, looks ahead and in some sense promises to outlive the living. So for example, when I die, people will, if they're so inclined anyways, still be able to have some sort of relation to me as this unique finite being or to the idea of me. And Derrida says that that relation will be premised on their ability to call me by my name, and thus to conjure me up in some sense, if not physically, then at least in memory. So Derrida moves from this insight to another insight about mourning. And in fact, he goes so far as to say that every act of naming foreshadows mourning. Every act of naming foreshadows mourning. By naming the other, we anticipate their loss and work in the present, he says, to stave it off. And in fact, the names that we give to others are part and parcel of this work of staving off their loss because even if we cannot prevent their physical loss, their death, by naming them we can assure that they have a chance of living on in our memories. So we ensure them a sort of cultural legacy, right? Or a communal legacy. So we might then think about names as tethers to the other. Right That enable us to have certain kinds of relationships while they're living or with us in some sense, but which also enable us to sustain those connections even after loss.
0: Thank you for that answer. I'm gonna take this in a very specific direction. Um, so considering all of that, including naming our connections to things and how our connection to things lives on through our naming, and specifically, Derrida's piece of work that you were referencing. Would you be willing to tell us more about Judith, your cat and how she might play into your thought processes? That's one of my favorite Derrida pieces. And I have cats and naming and grief are things. Of course I think about with them as well. So I would love if you could share.
1: I don't think about it. Cause my, my cat is never going to die. It's going to live forever. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> Yes. uh, Great question. So um, reader or listeners who are uh, familiar with Derrida's uh, collection of essays, The Animal That Therefore I Am, will remember that he begins with this uh, scene, right, of him in the bathroom nude with his cat. Right. And the cat is regarding him and Derrida finds that he is somehow in some way ashamed uh, in, in the presence of this feline other, right? And it opens on to a set of meditations about all sorts of things, right? About the relationship between, uh, culture and clothing, for example, uh, all the way to, um, the relationship between naming and mourning. And actually part of what he says about his cat, whom he does not name, in the text, right? Um, But part of what he says about the cat is that he knows it's a mortal being. He knows that this cat is a finite being and he has known that from the moment that he gave it a name, right? Or the moment that it received a name, right? So um, it's actually the cat, right? Which sets much of his thinking into motion. It has a name and therefore I can already begin to imagine that one day this cat will no longer be with me. Right. But I can even imagine that, right, as a projection out beyond its life because its name will survive it. And that's what he means, I think, when he says that every act of naming foreshadows mourning. It gives us the capacity to imagine the loss of this particular other. Right. Not loss in general, but the loss of this cat. Um, And in my case, right, it's Judith. So there's there's a reason that we name the companion animals and even plants sometimes, right? With whom we share our homes, right? Um, Some people might argue that this is a kind of anthropomorphism, right? Um, And that therefore it ought to be something that we approach with a certain kind of skepticism. Um, But I think Derrida's example, uh, your own example, Lindsay and certainly my own lived experience, right? Is that part of what happens with the naming and through the repetition. And in fact, my cat has not one name, but hundreds of names. I think many people who live with companion animals have had the experience of sort of giving a new name every so often, right? Uh, Riffing on uh, behaviors or just being, in our case, quite silly, right? Um, But it's that process of naming that helps to establish a certain kind of bond, right? That, That... In doing so, I recognize and I acknowledge in a daily and mundane sort of way that this is a particular being, right? It's a singular being, a finite being. It's not any cat, right? It's this cat, right? It's this cat, and that matters. That's not to say that the naming of species, for example, doesn't also similarly inaugurate right, certain kinds of connections. In fact, I argue that it does in the book. But there is something particular about the giving of personal names, right, that matters profoundly. It's not a surprise, right, that the one passenger pigeon that most people know about is Martha, right? Um, In the chapter on naming, I talk about endlings, which are the last living uh, organisms of a given species. And endlings are almost always given personal names, right i think that's not inconsequential i think it's also not accidental
1: yeah that's a that's a really just point. I, i'd never really kind of considered before the way that like yeah the 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 ones you know that because they often end up like at a zoo or something the last you know remaining species of something and so yeah you're going to name that so that the people that are coming and um yeah and and that's that's the, i think also the interesting part is that they're they're finally connecting with that species at the end of its existence, right? They did not care about it at all until they were able to see it in the zoo because it's the, the last thing and it's been named. And so now they can make that personal connection to it.
2: Yeah. It's, it's the strange poignancy of one, right? It's the strange poignancy of one when there's only one left, right? Suddenly it becomes something around which people gather.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think uh, yeah, I, you've given us a, a lot, a lot to think about here, uh, and certainly a, I think a, a wonderful, uh, you know, kind of uh, tip of the iceberg moment into your book. So I, I would highly encourage everyone to to check out the book, uh, you know, to to you know, get into some of the other details that you get into. So, um, yeah, thank you. But, uh, it is time to, to move to end on a roll. So I've got my 12 sided die here. I'm going to give it a toss and, uh, whichever number comes up, that's the question that we're going to ask you. So we have no, oops, I forgot to change my, my list here. Uh, number three, what are you reading right now? Or what have you read recently that you think people should uh, check out for themselves? I'll
2: give you two books, um, one that I recently finished and one that I will probably finish reading tomorrow. The one that I recently finished was the late Deborah Bird Rose's Shimmer, which uh, tells the story of the flying fox in Australia. And the book that I'm reading now is by a fellow rhetorical theorist named Megan Eatman, and it's called Ecologies of Harm, which is really trying to think through the ways in which discourses right um create worlds in which some beings and ways of being are exposed to harm and others are sustained so i think it's a really powerful work that helps us to think through how the ways that we talk and create images and do public art uh, make the world more livable for some than others
1: okay awesome great thanks for sharing those i'll uh, i'll post a link to the you know publishers websites or something for those on on the show notes so yeah check that check those out
0: all right as we're coming to the end and with those amazing book recommendations i would just like to ask joshua if you would be happy to share um, any social media or contact information you might have so people can find you find your book find your future work all that good stuff
2: Sure. Uh, Listeners can find me on Twitter at Joshua T. Barnett. And I'm always happy to receive an email. My email is barnett at psu.edu.
1: Right. Awesome. And again, that stuff will also be in the show notes. So uh, please, uh, yeah, check out his work and uh, get get in contact with him if you enjoyed hearing about this. Uh, So thanks again for for joining us. This has been uh, great. I, I always feel like the ones were the you know real meaty were were always like oh man we're out of time and we got so much more to talk about and uh, the time just just runs away from us like it like it always does so um yeah thank you and uh thank you all for listening this has been another episode of asley ecocast um if you have an idea for an episode either you want to feature your own work or you're there's somebody you would like for us to reach out to you can get a hold of us uh so our twitter is asley underscore ecocast uh, there's also a uh, link tree on there that you can use to for, fill out our form for submitting your proposal you could also email us at asley.ecocast at gmail.com.
0: If you enjoy listening to ECOCAST, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, and tweeting about today's show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next time.
1: Bye. Bye-bye, bye-bye.